In this week's episode, I refer to Michelangelo Matos' book as Can't Stop Now, and that wasn't right. The name of Michelangelo Matos' book is Can't Slow Down. Sorry about that. Here's the show. This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. Today, talking about Band-Aids, Do They Know It's Christmas? And Christmas music from 1984 with writer Michelangelo Matos and Stephen Drozd of Flaming Lips. My name is Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. Happy New Year. 2021 has picked up where 2020 left off as COVID continues to shape our lives. My daughter returned to in-class school for two days for New Orleans School Board returned all the city schools to virtual learning for at least the next two weeks. Fortunately, my daughter's become pretty good at remote learning, but... Ugh. But 12 Songs is back, and it will be back all year. For the first time, 12 Songs will be a year-around project, and I'm really excited about that. I've got some good interviews already in the can, and some I'm really looking forward to on the schedule. Today, I have two good conversations on 1984. Band-Aids, do they know it's Christmas? and Wham's Last Christmas. But first, I want to start with a song that's become a holiday staple to me. Hark the Herald Angels Sing by 11 Acorn Lane. The song came out in 2010 on 11 Acorn Lane's album, Happy Holy Days. At the time, I knew nothing about them and it was just one of many indie Christmas projects that crossed my desk that year. I had to look them up to see if 11 Acorn Lane still exists, and they do, and what their story is. Evidently, they're a two-man operation, Thomas Frewer and Neil Pauly, whose music revisits a lot of European and exotic jazz that fell under the lounge umbrella, but for a hip-hop era. Lounge became a catch-all in the early 90s for a lot of very different music, much of which Capitol Records successfully repackaged on the label's indispensable Ultra Lounge series. That series gave us three volumes of Christmas cocktails that leaned heavily on Las Vegas, Rat Pack era crooners, and it's also well worth the time and the effort. But my favorite lounge stuff were the records that seemed to be designed to show buyers what a hi-fi stereo could do, or explore the possibilities of what hi-fi stereo offered them as musicians. The most fetishized musician of that ilk was the Mexican composer and arranger Esquivel, whose work was reintroduced to a new generation on the influential Space Age Bachelor Pad music album of 1984. Here's part of his version of Jingle Bells. But for this and other songs I talk about now, you really want to hear them in stereo with headphones because the artists really treat the soundscape as a 3D space and locate sounds precisely and often crazily in it. In mono like this, you only get part of the appeal. Welcome. Welcome to my space age that speaks to you, let me also suggest the less legendary but equally amazing Three Sons. Sons, S-U-N-S. Some music by the Three Sons was reissued by RCA in the 1990s, and their Ding Dong Dandy Christmas was reissued in, on CD in 2015. A banner at the top of the album cover announces that the album is in living stereo. And to illustrate that, the Three Sons, again, float each part in 3D space as well, but they rely more heavily than Esquivel on their core instruments, the accordion, the organ, and the guitar, and the improbable additions of chimes, an oboe, and not one but two tubas. A reviewer at Billboard wrote that when it was first released in 1959, a ding-dong-dandy Christmas was, quote, good offbeat programming for jocks in search of something new in Yule Wax. 
And that's pretty accurate, though it really was kind of hard to imagine DJs actually playing it. Here, then, is their version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town. that backdrop, you can now hear the musical context that I hear when I listen to 11 Acorn Lane. I have to admit, part of the fun of it for me is that they take a hymn and turn it into a sonic joyride through the retro hip joints where glamorous people drink classic cocktails. At the same time, I like the subtle nods to modernity, particularly the slightly streamlined arrangement that I think is a byproduct of hip-hop aesthetics. I'll work that thought out more over time, but for now, let's go to 11 Acorn Lane and hark the Herald Angels sing. Today's first guest is music critic and journalist Michelangelo Matos, whose new book, Can't Stop Now, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year, covers the variety of pop developments that year, from Purple Rain to the Jackson Tour to the rise of the power ballad to the rise of British New Wave as a market force. Band-Aid's Do They Know It's Christmas was that moment crystallized, as was the 1984 Christmas season when Band-Aid topped Wham's bid for the top of the charts at Christmas time in England, last Christmas. I last interviewed Matos in 2015 about his history of electronic dance music, The Underground is Massive, and I'll link to those pieces I ran at My Spilt Milk in the show notes. As you might expect, when two writers get together, the conversation can get a little shaggy, and I'm leaving some of that in to convey the flavor of the conversation. But some of it will also end up in a piece I'm working on on Can't Stop Now for My Spilt Milk. Here we go then with Michelangelo Matos on 12 Songs. So what prompted Can't Slow Down? I had the idea on a plane home to, from New York to Seattle in 2009, and I tried to do something about it that year, but it didn't fly. I, had, I wrote a book proposal and I didn't know how to write a book yet. I'd only written the 33 and a third book about Sign of the Times, which is a, basically an essay, a long essay. So that was a whole different sort of thing than what I wanted to do. I wasn't looking to write a book of essays. I was writing, I was looking essentially to write the kind of book that I did write. Um, but I didn't know how to do that yet. I wasn't really, you know, writing a book is a different skill than writing a magazine piece. And at that point, I had only, I'd always written features, but I didn't write features uh, anywhere near exclusively or even as the bulk of my work looked the way I do, that I do now and that I started to do in 2010. Um, because there was just, I was just writing record reviews and there was just nowhere to publish record reviews, especially to make a living at it. So I was, uh, you know, I, so, I, so I wrote a book proposal that didn't work, and I then realized in the middle of EDM fever that, oh, yes, here's the book I should write. I know this stuff. So I wrote The Underground is Massive, and that was 
a much, I mean, it took a long time to do, but it was a much easier task because I had a really good idea of what the outlines were. I knew who to contact. Um, I knew all, you know, any blank you could fill in, I knew who would be filling or who could or should be filling. So that was a big undertaking because it was 300 interviews, but I also knew my way around the terrain in a way that I didn't in uh, with 1984. And then I finished that book and started working on another idea I had that was like, okay, the way I'm doing this is going to take a decade, forget it. And at, it was shortly or after I had turned the book in, I think the same month that Rolling Stone asked me to participate in their top 100 pop hits of 1984 list. And that was, you know, fun. And it kind of, you know, it made me realize especially after our, I believe your friend and mine, Jody Rosen pointed out on Facebook when this thing appeared, he was like, aren't you gonna write a book about that? Weren't you gonna do that? And I thought, and I was just like, God damn it, I have to. Like the minute I saw him say that, it was like, yeah, that's obviously what you have to do. Even though it hadn't sold, I was like, well, I have a better handle on this. And then I started, you know, I did the usual thing that anybody writing a book does, which is to take everything off my shelf that I thought would be useful and go through it all and start there. And, you know, I started hitting the library. I was still living in New York at that point. And I was looking for something. I don't know what I was looking for. And all of a sudden I, you know, I Googled my way, I Googled stumbled my way into this incredible air check of, of Larry Berger, the program director at WPLJ in New York. It is this 40-minute audio of him explaining to the audience, the audience for WPLJ, which at that point was the biggest rock station in New York. It was the biggest AOR. And he had a month prior to this air check the station had switched to, a, to from AOR to CHR, from album rock to top 40. And this was happening all around the US at this time in 1983. Um, it was everywhere. You basically, in, in the Twin Cities where I was growing up, it was KQRS. I remember doing some research for something else and going through, you know, finding a mid 19 or an end of 1984. Uh, ad in city pages and it was kqrs's top 92 and a half songs of the year so it was uh, it's uh, 92.5 right and and it's like there's a culture club song on it purple rain is number 13 there's like a michael J you know i think thriller is on it somewhere there and i remember at the time the all of a sudden this this album rock stalwart not that i was thinking of it in those terms but when i was nine I noticed the difference quite, uh, quite obviously noticed the difference because I'd be in the car with my stepfather who always listened to it. And all of a sudden they'd be playing Little Red Corvette and everybody in the car was like, what? What's that doing on this station? Because KQRS, the only black people KQRS ever played were Hendrix and Thin Lizzy. Right. So, and, and like Jaimo, if you count the Allman Brothers band. And that's it pretty much. And so for this to happen, for them to suddenly be playing Michael Jackson records and Culture Club records was huge. And that was something I always noticed. And I also noticed that it went away within two years. So <clears throat> I found this air check and it is him talking about the many changes that WPLJ, another AOR had gone, gone through over the years and how they came to the conclusion that if they kept playing the same music they were playing forever, they'd go out of business within five years. So they switched. They made the switch to CHR. And he then proceeds to read half a dozen very angry letters from his listeners. Very angry. And the tone of those letters, you know, I started... I. I moved back to the Twin Cities at the beginning of 2016 and really started doing the work on this book. And the tone of those letters and their aggrieved nature and the racial codedness of those letters 
was just like, you know, I was I would step away from Twitter to work on the book and be confronted with the same thing. In right. Essence. So once I found that, it was like, okay, this book is happening because I could not have found a better place to start. That uh, air check took place in the summer of 1983. So it works as an introduction to the whole thing. So when you talk about the, re the reaction that people had, one of the things I've been thinking about, I went back uh, a, a couple of years ago, um, Simple Minds played here and uh, played like a, you know, a 2000 seat theater. And I was thinking this used to be an arena band in England. And so right. I was kind of thinking, why did Simple Minds never translate to America? And I went back and I looked and I realized how fast British new wave era, uh, British hit makers of three, 83, 84, 85, how fast they appeared and disappeared. You know, like yeah. thinking about like by 86, Wham! had broken up, Culture Club had broken up, and on MTV, they would be there for a year, and the next year you had, you know, 10 different bands with a lot of hair. And I could, and I was thinking at the time, looking back, it's like, yeah, I understand why American audiences who weren't paying close attention would think this was all ephemeral and that this was all sort of, you know, that, that this was all lightweight and why are we doing this and not doing more dudes in flannel shirts? I mean, <clears throat> that's a that sounds like four questions at once. Yes. Um, which uh, I will try to answer as best I can. So, I mean, because there's a lot. Number one, a lot of those bands had been around in Britain. Not all of them, but a few of them had been around in Britain for a little while prior to, you know, breaking in the States. Culture Club only breaks in the States for real with uh, what was their fourth single in England. And here it's their first. Do You Really Want to Hurt Me was like the last gasp from Kissing to be Clever. And then suddenly that and it, that broke them huge there too but here i've got i will never forget one of the most vivid memories of my pop life is and being seven years old and watching american was it american bandstand or was it america's top 10 i think it was american bandstand no it was america's top 10 and it was i remember him being announced as boy george and then seeing him and I had nothing to relate this to. It scared me. Like, it was very, very, like, we're, it was not a world where trans people were abundant and visible. Sure. All, you know? And so I was the seven-year-old kid, and I had never seen that before. I had only seen that, like, at Halloween or whatever. And there was also this, like, you know, I remember running into the kitchen to, to get my mom because I was like, they said it's a boy, but it's not a boy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. The, the, the sort of thing that, like, I'm sure, you know, if a seven-year-old said it now, they would get dragged on social media. Um, and But, like, a seven-year-old now also has a completely different frame of reference than I did then. And so, I mean, and I liked the music, but it just, like, confounded me. So that was that was a big revelation, and then and then pretty quickly my like I, I went from being like weirded out to finding it extremely cool, and so you have you had all of these groups that had been road tested in Britain, and then you had America ready for them once they were ready for prime time, and the uh, you know so what would that doesn't negate your point though because in the case of those groups it was usually just a few singles that they had road tested before they hit america and this was a this was a uh, this was a point of pride for america and for american music writers in 84 because the idea of america you know the america first idea that sort of ran through the year in terms of written criticism was in part based on the idea that American music was realer because they were, because, and at that point was still sort of holding true, but in the immediate aftermath of 84, no longer was the case at all. American bands were realer because they played bars. 
there was this very romantic mythos that year about the bar band as a sort of ur text for great American, uh, you know, stick to itiveness and uh, great American work ethic. Um, you know, in that way, it was very Reagan esque. Like that part of you know the 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 Republican ideal of America at work. You know, happy to be working a factory was, you know, while the actual Republican government, you know, spent all the money on the arms race. Um, you had, that was concurrent through Springsteen and through the American Underground. You know, that's every Peter Buck interview. That's a lot of records released that year are about that Americanist exceptionalism. And whereas, Brits were seen as pop. They were seen as fun trick noisemakers that exploded and, and disappeared. And indeed, that was the idea for a lot of the artists, not all of them, but a few. Certainly that was the idea behind the way that Paul Morley positioned Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Paul Morley was ZTT Records sort of strategist. He'd been a critic for the New, Mil for the New Musical Express. And then he went over to ZZ, a ZTT, which was run by uh, Trevor Horan. And, you know, he, he wrote all these manifestos and did all of this like sleeve writing, uh, liner note writing for Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And the whole point there was to make them into the ultimate pop trick, the ultimate, you know, the ultimate rabbit out of a hat and then disappears sort of thing. And in America, that didn't translate at all. And for, so you had a lot of, uh, <clears throat> you had a lot of American writers and critics who wanted to, ex who extolled American rock in those more, in those concrete terms. And it does make sense because a lot of the American stars of that moment were people who were having who you know who were in mid-career prince had been around for almost a decade springsteen had been around for 15 years like these are people with real you know where where you have to apply that work ethic to them because it makes perfect sense they you know they produced they kept going they made great music over and over and over again and by 84 they were making some of their very best music and they were not, it, none of it was an accident, you know? There, there was a lot of planning. Um, and for, you know, so there was, a, there was also that like, oh, hard work rewarded aspect with Springsteen and Prince as well. And with ZZ Top and with a lot of people who had been around for a bit. But if you look at the way that like Madonna got written about early on, like it's totally in, it's totally in sneering raucous versus pop terms. And it's only after she's been around for a couple of years and the actually smart people have figured out that she's good at what she does and that the music is good, you know, meaning like, you know, the DJs are playing, the kids are responding to it. And after a certain point, you either, you either understand what people are responding to or you're a kombucha. I right. mean, you know, it, it, at least with her. So, but there were a couple of quotes that I wound up cutting for space, but her manager was Frank Dilio, who had managed Michael Jackson. And Dilio put her in theaters on her first tour in spring of 1985 because he said he wanted the audience to see her sweat. That's interesting. Do you remember, because I have a slightly different experience with this. I was in Toronto in 1984. And so, for instance... I was amazed when I looked and found that uh, Band-Aids, Do They Know It's Christmas, peaked at number 13 in the States because it went to number one in Canada. And it was, it was ubiquitous on Canadian, uh, much music, the Canadian equivalent of MTV. And so I don't have a perspective on how played or not played Do They Know It's Christmas was um, in the States. Do you have any recollection on this or how it, how it landed here? It was not that big. No, 13 is 13. You, sometimes you look at a, you know, a chart peak position and think, oh, that's really out of whack to my memories. 13 is almost exactly right. 
That's that's precisely how it felt. It was there. It had a lot of presence, but it was also not ubiquitous, and it was not nearly as popular as it was common to the pod. I saw and heard that song more on the news than I did on the radio. Oh, interesting. How does now, as you're telling us, as you're thinking about music in '84, how does that fit into the story? How does uh, do they know it's Christmas? Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's the, you know, it's basically the, the, it's the, it is the climax of the year for sure. I mean, it had been a big year for British acts, of course. It had, there had been a lot of movement and momentum on the part of pop as an increasingly ubiquitous part of, of culture. You know, rock music in 1984 was as big as the movies or as big as TV, you know, it was as big or bigger than anything else that year. So to have like the all-star cast join together for, you know, charity, that's the cherry on top, of course. And then when America does it a couple of months later in February, that's also the cherry on the Sunday. You know, the, the USA for Africa record sort of clinched that pop was the driving force in culture. Like it was where things, you know, it was where the, the, what is it? It's a Simon Reynolds term, uh, the zone of creativity or whatever. Like he, he has a much better phrase for it than I'm thinking of, but, but it's basically, that's where the zone is. That's where the spotlight is. That's where, where, that's where the energy is all coming out. And so, you know, and it also, even at the time, it looked like, oh, this is a dead end creatively. Like, everybody's just going to make charity records. <laughs> records. <laughs> everybody's going everybody's gonna to get together, and it's going to be a cause. And it became a joke. It became a punchline within a few years. You know, when The Simpsons made fun of it, it was, like, long over by then. But that, to me, is the capstone. Right. And then you, I mean, even in later 85, and I don't get to include this in the book, but like, you just, again, there's, I had to leave a lot out of this book. Um, the, you know, uh, Sun City came, came out in late 85. And that's, a, you know, a very honorable piece of music that does a good thing and that nobody really wants to listen to it. Whereas the other two, whereas Do They Know It's Christmas and We Are the World, those are both songs that have staying power, God help us. They, they haven't really gone anywhere. People remake them sometimes, but it's really about the originals in both cases. They have a sort of timeless hitch appeal. There's just no getting around it. And, oh, but I, I'm, I'm going to step a little bit into Do They Know It's Christmas vis-a-vis its biggest chart competitor which was Last Christmas by Wang. That was George Michael, you know, he'd written that song at the beginning of 84 and was going, yeah, this is going to be the Christmas number one. You know, he, he was very confident about what he was doing and he should have been because he was pretty untouchable for a few years. And he wrote that song and they made that record and he was just like, you know, he knew he knew he had he had made the Christmas number one, which is a big deal in Britain. And then he went and he, I think a lot of people who went to the Band Aid session did not realize that it was going to be as large and have as many stars in it as it did. A lot of people thought it was going to be like four people, like yeah. it was just going to be a small knot of people, more like. And this is actually probably the best of those chair all-star charity records is that's what friends are for the Dion Warwick and Stevie and Elton John and Patty. Like that's a really, you know, that's a very good record of that type. And, and it has really, you know, a lot of staying power because it's just a song. It's not a song about, about the thing it's, you know, getting money for. Sure. Um, But so a lot of people went into the studio and were just like, floor like oh wow everyone's here um and that was a and then i believe actually let me look this up i can find the actual story here let's see ah okay 
No, on the day of the recording, what he told, he told a reporter that he thought was from Smash Hits. This record might not be number one at Christmas, but then again, so might ours. But I don't care because I'm on both of them. <laughs> and then he went to his car and heard it on the radio and realized he had made a humongous PR mistake. Right. And, and he then said, I went back to the office to the next, the next day and said, I think we'd better give up on our number one. Christmas, but I got to say, one thing that struck me while you're talking about people not knowing who is actually going to be there for uh, Do They Know It's Christmas, and one thing I was fascinated by reading about this was the degree to which, I mean, I, I mean, the story has been told that Bob Geldof was just calling everybody, but that they didn't really have any particular, you know, because he was just talking to musicians, nobody was ever sure who was who was going to show up, and a number of years up to, ago, up to the day, up to, up the, to day. the day. Yeah. I, I, a number of years ago, I interviewed uh, Tony Hadley of Spandau Ballet sure. and they were on tour with Duran Duran in Paris. That's And right. they were actually in the bar after the show and they got the call tomorrow morning, lads. And yep. so they, yeah, they went, showed, everybody every, showed up with dark glasses on because they were all hung over. Exactly. Uh, he was, you know, but the one thing I thought was really interesting thinking about that, and again, and I admittedly, because I was in I was in Canada where there was, you know, the British pop stars had greater presence. You know, I was thinking what, you know, about that moment and that walking into the room and seeing literally, if you're in England, you saw everybody who everybody who mattered yes. was in the room that day. Basically, yeah. And um and it weirdly took me a while to connect to that because we were so, you know, in the moment and now we hear it as product. And it was interesting to think about, you know, Hadley, I mean, Hadley famously sang the first lines. Uh, he yes. was the first person in the booth and he said, I'm standing there hung over with, you know, Bono and, uh, and Simon and, you know, whoever else standing there watching me. George I'm Michael. Yeah, and I'm taking first try, first swing at a song I don't know. You know who the first you know who the first person to show up for the session was? No. Sting. Interesting. Sting Sting just walked up to the studio by himself and they they, you know, did a little dance. They were like, "Oh good, Sting's here." <laughs> that means, you know, to them that was a good luck charm. It was like if Sting can show up and I mean of all of the people in that room, he was probably the biggest star at that moment. Why do you think, uh, I mean, it might be obvious, but why do you think Do They Know It's Christmas did better than Last Christmas? Because Last well, Christmas I mean, is a better song. Oh, it, it is, but of course, that doesn't matter because, you know, you're not, you, because you're gearing things to sentiment, to, you know, things are geared towards sentiment in the Christmas chart sweepstakes of Britain, you know? Especially then, that do they do they know it's Christmas had been inspired by a BBC TV report by Michael Burke about the famine in Ethiopia, and that show that special it appeared in October was the catalyst for a lot more than just that song and a lot more than just Geldof's subsequent career in relief work. It was a lot of people were deeply affected by it because that sort of footage 
We've seen that sort of footage forever since then. We've become a nerd to it. Nobody had seen that footage before. That was new. When, when you saw starving children whose bodies looked like sticks, it was a really, I mean, it's appalling now, but again, we've had, we've seen those images for a, a, more than a generation. We've been seeing them for 35 years at this point. So they're not going to have the same kind of impact as if we had never seen them before and suddenly there they were. That, that special upset people, genuinely upset people. So, you know, to have a Christmas tie-in record with that is, you know, as uh, if that doesn't sound too, you know, mercenary, to put it that way. I mean, that's what it was. And it played on that sentiment very adroitly. Again, I don't think it was, I don't think the record was cynical. I don't think Bob Geldof had a cynical bone in his body because if he had, he would have been a much more successful pop star in 1984 uh, uh, than he was, and he probably wouldn't have made that record. Right, right. He would, he would have been, you know, flogging the fourth video off the album. But instead, he had fallen off a cliff as a pop star, and when he did this, people didn't think he was doing it for his career. That's the important thing. He wasn't doing it for his career. He was putting his career to the side to do it. And I don't, and I'm not sitting here trying to say, oh, Bob Geldof was a saint. You know, sure. There have there I didn't get into this in the book because I realized, you know, there just isn't the space. And I don't have the scope for it. I don't, I'm not an expert on international relief. And I am certainly not an expert on where the money went or should have gone or wherever. I sidestepped all of that because I realized this is a book about pop in that year and the parts of Live Aid that I'm going to talk about have to reflect that. So that's what I do. Right. But there have been many reports about mismanaged goods and money that came out of the Live Aid effort and the Band-Aid effort. So I, I cannot sit here in my right mind, even with my limited amount of knowledge on the topic and say, oh, you know, Bob Geldof is a, was an unalloyed good. Um, maybe he was and maybe he wasn't, I really can't say. I will say that in 84, when he did the, when he did the record, it was very, it was clearly coming from a real place and people responded to that very sincerely. You know, a lot of things from that period. Another a, another example that I focus on in the book is the is another record that was that came out in that that November and was also a big Christmas record, uh, partly because of the arrangement. Even though it's not a Christmas song, is I want to know what love is by Foreigner, and like they, like Mick Jones, a Foreigner, said this is the first single because it has that Christmas feel and it's Christmas time. He's right. It has sleigh bells. It has a choir. It's an it, it's a hymn. It makes perfect sense as a Christmas song. But it was also, gosh, why did I why did I even bring this up? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, it was a, it was about since it was about what we would soon perceive as kitsch that was not perceived at all as kitsch at the time. And that record is a perfect example. It's a very easy record to take for granted, to take as kitsch, to just sort of not hear. It's a very easy record to, to tune out and not listen to because, you know, if you come, if you're older and you're coming from a more cynical sort of mindset, a record like that seems silly. And I knew I was going to, I knew I was going to focus on it to some degree. And because, you know, that record really did shock people at the time like the Lou Grand's vocal especially it's a very like he's not kidding that's not a that's not a cheap easy sentimental record at all it's a very powerful it's a very powerful vocal like you have to really give yourself to it to hear it uh you know a lot of power balladry works that way if you don't if you are already, if you have in your mind that you're not going to like it, you're really not going to like it. And I don't mean that everybody should turn off those receptors because 90% of the time they're up for a reason. Mine on right. for sure. But I remember listening to it and paying attention to the vocal and being like, oh my God, it's like I've never heard this before. 
process it and I, and I go back and forth with do they know it's Christmas because I can you, know, you but, not because in a, besides the whole issue with colonialism there's also just some incredibly over-the-top lyrics yes but if you think about 1984 and that so many people were including Geldof and uh, Midgeur they're thinking about this about starvation for the first time in most case, in their cases, thinking Absolutely. about 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 you know a country and part of a continent starving, and right. Well, let me jump into a sure. couple of those lyrics specifically. Anybody who has ever seen a photo of Kilimanjaro knows there's snow in Africa. Right. Yes. Number one. Number two. Bono was not happy with the line he was given. Uh, you know, tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. Right. And Midgner has defended that line as being, you know, there but for the grace of God in different words. It's not it's not them lording over anybody. It's them like trying, you know, but they're pop stars. Right. <laughs> and on a record like this, it comes across more celebratory than I, even though I think, you know, I don't think Bono, I mean, he does what he can with it, which he, he would admit himself was just imitate Springsteen. Right. <laughs> and so, but the other one, of course, is Sting was very unhappy at having to sing his own name because he sings the line, uh, what is the line? When I had it open before, the bitter sting of tears. That's his <laughs> line. And of course, I don't, I would not be at all surprised if Geldof or even Midgeur, you know, apportioned those lines, you know, they apportioned those lines to who they apportioned them for, for a reason. And I'm sure he was having a little bit of fun with Sting because they were friends. Right. That's the reason Sting showed up first is because he was good friends with Geldof. You know, the, the other piece of this I find interesting is to think, to think about how, especially if you're a fan of this music, I mean, if you're a fan of British pop, that the idea that you had to feel so cutting edge because, and sort of like you, like sort of you won the culture battle because the music you like isn't just winning the charts or even winning your country. The The music you like is actually taking on world hunger. And that, yes. you're, and that kind of really for the first time since late 60s music is actually in a really hard genuine way interacting with world politics well i mean do you want to say late 60s or do you want to say punk 
you know, et cetera. Sure. You want to say rap? You sure. want to say early hip hop? It's right there. So no, I don't, I don't buy that. I don't buy okay. that it was the, that this hadn't been happening since the sixties at all. Um, this was happening. This was happening all the time. It may not have been happening directly in the media eye, but you know, I think we all know that the media, that the boomer controlled media had its own sort of, uh, you know, it's a, it's own bacon to fry sure. and it didn't include those things or it included those things in a very different sort of way than they were relating to the people they related to. This was the way that it was seen at the time too. Suddenly meaning, you know, it was a, because apparently only mainstream rock could have meaning to its, to its listeners, you know, right. never mind sheep, never mind, you never mind August Darnell, never mind the dozens of, lyricists who were tackling these sorts of things in all kinds of pop music after the 60s. I think what was missing was the illusion, I'm quoting Paul Williams here, but the illusion of, you know, that the illusion was that that audience was everyone. And of course it wasn't. It wasn't at all. So, but you see that a lot in the coverage of more of the coverage of USA for Africa than the coverage of Band-Aid because the British press didn't buy into that sort of thing much, or at least the British pop press, whereas the American pop press did. So, and the chapter that I talked about USA for Africa in was, this was a complete struck of, you know, Googling luck. I was looking for some information. I, I was looking at a billboard issue from that period, from the time of uh, USA for Africa. What I was doing specifically was looking for Harry Belafonte quotes. I was trying to find things he had said about the project, which are very hard to find if you just Google. And I was looking at this old, bil this old billboard and there was an ad, like a full page ad for Radio USA for Africa, a Westwood One special that aired in April. And I was like, huh, I wonder what this was. And I found it. I found it almost immediately, the entire broadcast, somebody had uploaded it. And I listened to the whole thing and took extensive notes. And it is a kitch-o-rama. <laughs> My God. <laughs> it climaxed near the end with a poet. They don't ID the guy. And he's, he's a poet of some sort. He's obviously Black. And he is intoning, is the right word, this dreadful poem over, you know, these menacing sounding, you know, electro toms. And it ends this way. Why, 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 why? <laughs> and it was just like, I threw in the towel after that. I was like, I cannot take this anymore. But it, there was only 10 minutes left and I soldiered forth. Uh. There was just, there was, I mean, the 60s appears on that broadcast so many times, usually in the guise of somebody from the 60s, funny enough, like Peter Yarrow. You know you're in trouble when Peter Yarrow gets on the mic. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's just going to be like, so, some of it is so sententious, it's insane. But it was all like, the 60s were when we all cared about each other. It's right. like, oh, did you? Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I don't even, I mean, I have a lot of love for 60s rock. And, you know, whether, you know, I have a conflicting sort of relationship with that generation of music because I love it and venerate it and hate it at the same time. And not just in a, not just in a, a Gen X kind of way, but just like, Almost in the like it, when you look at kids now and they just loathe that whole generation. Like you see a lot of kids, I guess the Beatles always sucked. It's like, no, they didn't. You're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. But at the same time, I can understand it because all the because the Beatles are genuinely furniture to them, old sure. furniture. So the 60s is this whole thing that the mid-80s is not really aligned with. Right. The six the '60s as an idea is something that this particular book, the, the the stuff in this book is, it's funny. Most of the people who are making these 
records and the people who are commenting on them are, when they like them, they're comparing them very favorably to the 60s. The radio is vibrant. There's all kinds of all kinds of good music happening off radar too. That's what made it an amazing year. And that, you know, the radio is the best it's been since the mid-60s. Everybody says this. And then the sort of end of that happens in large part because of the all-star gatherings. Live Aid becomes sort of a flex on Geldof's part to eliminate the parts of the 80s he doesn't like, except for like a handful of chart toppers that are on the bill sort of as a sock to the audience. Like in 84... In no other year than 85 would Paul Young be on that bill. Right. And and so you have, especially in America, where it's Bill Graham is the promoter for the U.S., and it is just top down with 60s artists and 70s artists. And there's almost nothing current, almost nobody that somebody under 25 would be into that somebody over 25 wouldn't in 1984. Sure. So, so yeah, there's so that I think is a big reason that that era is so ill remembered overall. It's not a heroic period for the great rock icons. In fact, it's an anti heroic period, which was great fun to write about. <laughs> it's Christmas time. No need to be afraid At Christmas time We let in light And we vanish it And in our world Of plenty We can spread a smile of joy Oh, your arms around the world At Christmas time Right, that was that Wham's biggest year. Who's year? Eighty-four Wham. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was their last year in essence. They broke up in eighty-five. No, they didn't break up in eighty-five. They broke up in eighty-six. Yes, they played Wembley to almost two years to the day after Live Aid. They spent eighty-five largely on tour. I think they put out an EP that, that year. The China as well. So that was sort of the tipping. The way that so. For Madonna, it's Desperately Seeking Susan. The movie comes out, people who've only heard a lot of hearsay or whatever haven't really engaged with the music. They see the movie and they get it. Oh, she's funny. She's crafty. She's smart. You know, all these things that the press didn't make her out to be unless you were actually reading her quotes. Right. You know, because it was like, she, you know, there's that great Seymour Stein line in his memoir, which is she was always the smartest person in the room, even when she wasn't in the room. Right. I mean, that's really that rings out perfectly clearly when you read her interviews early on. She was the smartest, probably right. the you know, very likely the smartest person ever to become a mega pop star. Hmm. And with when it's they went to China. 
Now they're not just pop stars, they're statesmen. Right. So all of a sudden, everybody respects them. Madonna, you know, desperately speaking, Susan, you had to respect Madonna now. When Wham goes to China, you had to respect George Michael. Do you consider, I mean, I know George Michael intended Last Christmas to be a Christmas song, but I often read people saying that, no, they don't think it's really a Christmas song. Oh, God. He, he, not only did he know it was a Christmas song, he plotted out for it to be the Christmas number one. This was not an accident. George Michael was a canny person. You know, there were very few accidents in George. I think the only accident in George Michael's career were when they had to sue their indie to get off of it so they could put out Make It Big and a Major, and when George got caught in the park. Right. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I was I, I, I was reading people saying that. I'm like, he put sleigh bells on it, and he released it like December 2nd or 3rd. And it's, it's like if you, last Christmas. If you call it Last Christmas and you put it out in time for the Christmas season right with sleigh bells. Easter. Yeah. It's like... That is the worst way to hide a song. One last note on that conversation. Before Christmas, I published an essay on last Christmas at 12songsofchristmas.com, 12 spelled out. And that essay flushes out some of the song's history and my take on it. I'm sure we'll talk about Last Christmas soon enough on 12 Songs, but I'll link to the piece in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. To finish this episode, I'm returning to Stephen Draws of Flaming Lips. When we spoke last fall, we were in the process of winding down when he revved up for a take on Do They Know It's Christmas that I enjoyed but I couldn't figure out how to edit it into the episode without an awkward cut somewhere. I set it aside to use another day, and when I booked Mottos, I knew when it would make the most sense. Here we go then with the flaming lips Stephen draws on Band-Aid and Do They Know It's Christmas. And, you know, another thing we didn't talk about was uh, Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid, you know. Um, man, when that came out, I was uh, 15. I was a sophomore in high school. I was way into U2. I was just starting to discover weirder music, you know. I was getting out of my rush prog rock yes phase or whatever. But that video and that song, it's just, man, what a wonderful thing that is, you know. So every t- every Christmas time when that comes back up, I'm like, all right, it's time to hear that song every day on the radio for the next two months, you know. And I love it. So. I, I have that's, to say, that's it. <laughs> I have uh, I interviewed um, Tony Hadley from mm-hmm. uh, Spandau Ballet when yeah. he put out a Christmas album, and he and he was telling me about Band Aid, um, and that they were actually had they were on tour. Spandau Ballet was on tour with um, with Duran Duran in Paris when they yeah. got the phone call that said, okay. You know, the, we're, we're, we're on tomorrow, so be in the studio at this time. And they'd been in the bar for like two hours after the show when they got the message that they were, were on for the next day. So they had to come home, go in, hung over, and he was saying that he was the first person tapped to get in the booth and start singing. And he said he was standing there with, you know, with Bono and Boy George and Simon all watching him as he's like hung over and, you know, and, uh, you know, <laughs> sweating, you know, sweating uh, vodka or something and yeah. trying to hack through watching all like what all the musical royalty in his world standing there watching him as a uh, first guy in trying to sing, uh, trying to sing that song. Well, some of the combination of voices and the harmonies are just so wonderful, you know, and then you get this fucking, uh, we are the world that comes out the next summer or whatever. It's like, oh man, that thing is so lousy. What a stinker! They just—they were trying to capture that same magic, but I—I I think they failed. It's pretty comical, but the uh, do they know it's Christmas? Man, some of those harmonies are are so good together. Like, uh, is it Sting and Bono have a harmony on one line? It's like, man, that's just really great. You know? Anyway, and, and and the performance is so good that you get around the—I mean, that you can get around or almost get around the lyrics. 
you know, yeah. I mean, like at the time it didn't catch me, but now you listen and the lyrics are so over the top, so purple and, 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 and there's, and so <laughs> colonial, like, like, do they know Very it's Christmas? Colonial. No, yeah. why would they know it's Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so yeah, Weird Al Yankovic should have put out a single after that. Why would they know it's Christmas? Yeah. But he didn't, ah, so. Ah, ah. But no, you're right. It's it's so kind of not condescending, but like, what the fuck? Okay, I guess you're gonna save the world, white people, or whatever. You know? Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, but but there's a lot of things to love about it. Even Phil Collins' drum part on that, I just man, I just really like it, you know. And I was a Phil Collins Genesis denier for many years, but even when I was, I always loved that. He does some cool drum fills, and the whole thing is just great. So um, another great Christmas song to look forward to every year. So. so. 